Thank you so much for listening to the Green Majority Podcast. You can hear all our shows and get notes for each show at the website at greenmajority.ca, which is where you can also be sign up and become a member to support the Green Majority. We can get our word out there to more and more folks and hopefully spread our interesting discussions far and wide. You can do that at patron.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash greenmajority, or just go to greenmajority.ca. Enjoy the show. listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I am your host, Darren Kaster, and I'm sitting in studio. It feels as if it was years ago. Stefan. <laughs> Stefan yes. Hostetter is back in the studio. And in fact, just Stefan Hostetter. So it's going to be the Stefan Show today. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I've always wanted a Stefan Show. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we have a few news items today we're going to be going through. Uh, first of all, let me let me just uh, say a couple things first before we get into the, for this week's content. Uh, first of all, uh, we got a uh, 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 quiver, shall I say. Quiver. Full of email about some of the stuff from last mm-hmm. week's show. Uh, I, I, uh, and for any of the, anybody who emails us, uh, just generally, but I will say just because we got such a torrent of email, which was somewhat expected, frankly, uh, on last week's show that uh, unlike a year ago, I'm now largely employed. Oh, wow. uh, and have uh, much less ability to answer emails. So you're not being ignored. As long as you were not you know, screaming at me and, and hurling insults, you will be replied to, uh, but please bear with us. Uh, we love hearing from you where there just may be some delay. So let's start with that. Uh, with that as well, uh, I also have a number of pieces we're going to be getting to at the end of the program because a whole bunch of... Well, it's stuff we've talked about quite a bit, but I have a, happen to have a whole bunch of brand new numbers in front of me. So we're going to be talking about just how absolutely... Um, Silly. I was about to say something I can't say on air, Stephen. Mm-hmm. Uh, how absolutely ludicrous, maybe there's a good word, uh, all our subsidy of fossil fuels in this country is, what that does to our actual job market, what it actually does to our economy. Uh, it's not what you're told, I'll guarantee you that. Uh, and the lost opportunities, uh, we'll also roll that into some updates about uh, what's going on, both in, uh, some updates in Alberta, which are very interesting, and some uh, not so interesting uh, or Unfortunately, interesting for the wrong reason. Uh, more silliness to be coming out of the BC climate stuff. So we'll be getting nice. into climate policy, money, pipelines, and subsidies, which is kind of our go-to stuff. Uh, we're going to get to that at the end. But I really, Stefan, I missed you. Ah, so uh, you said you wanted to play a game, and I'm actually going to let you. We're going to we're going to start on a high note today, uh-huh. and uh, I'll let you take the floor now. All right, thank you very much. Uh, so uh, the game actually is connected to a news story. Uh, so I'll start with the news story. It's a very brief news story, which is mostly just a segue into the game that I want to play. Uh, but the news story is that there are thousands of churches uh, in the UK that are getting off fossil fuels. Uh, 3,500 churches, actually, uh, which is a very small percentage of the 50,000 churches that exist in the UK. Uh, but it's a majority of the ones that are uh, that are run by the Salvation Army and a third of the Quaker meeting rooms. Uh, so it's like it's it's a, a certain number. Uh, it's a decent number. And, of course, that comes on the heels to some extent, or not. neither of those two technically actually think the Pope you know, can talk to God, but there is at least the uh, – but generally in the Christian faith, there is you know, some connection, I think, at least. Mm. Um, they're, they're on moderately good terms these days. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure some – so now we get weird things from the Irish. But anyways, that's a, that's a whole different bag of words. Well, the point of the show is to anger at least somebody. Everybody. Okay. <laughs> well, great. Then we've already done a quota, and we have, a net, we have 54 minutes to spare. <laughs> 
Uh, so this is, this is a great story. I'm really and and uh, we don't we don't often talk about the religion angle for the same reason we don't often talk about some of the stuff we talked about uh, last week as well, uh, having to do with sort of non environmentally direct, directly related geopolitics. But you know, as we well, as we always talk about, all this stuff is rolled into one. And uh, with mine and yours personal uh, beliefs aside, uh, religion does play an incredibly large role in many people's lives. So this is this is an important issue, and, and we frankly we don't talk about it enough. So yeah. uh, thank you for picking that. Yeah, yeah. So there's uh, so and, and of course the that comes actually from another. Uh, another thing that the Pope uh, called uh, the called called destroying the environment is sin, uh, and, he, and part of the quote, one quote he has actually uh, in this whole thing is that he says that. <laughs> Uh, just to make sure I'm not going to ruin my game here, let me read the, what I'm actually going to be doing. Okay, uh, great. Uh, so th- this part is not part of the game about to play. Uh, but one of his quotes is that uh, humanity uh, is turning is, is that mankind is turning the planet into a polluted wasteland full of debris, desolation, and filth. That's the Pope. That is a dark, dark comment for the Pope. Mm. Um, anyways, uh, so which brings me to the game. The game is very simple. Mm. Uh, the game is called uh, Pope or Marxist. <laughs> um, and the, how the game, how the game works, is I will read two different quotes. Mm. One is from the Pope, uh, and one is from Marxist.com. Mm. Uh, and uh, and so what we'll do is we'll have uh, I'll read two quotes uh, at the end of the end of the at the end of the show uh, I will reveal who is correct. Oh, all right. Uh, it will be the two of you. Uh, Alex is, our, is 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 in the booth in a tech, and and of course you, Darren. Darren. Um, and uh, uh, and then in the uh, and then all the rest of you listening currently uh, can tweet in your answers to, to to my handle or the Green Majority. Uh, my handle's at uh, ste. Steho, S-T-E-H-O underscore, mm-hmm. uh, and Green Majority is obviously S at Green Majority, uh, and they can try to beat the two of you uh, on understanding this, uh, which is one, which is which. All right, so, whose Marxist detector is the best, or Pope detector? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Which one do you know better? Uh, so, one of the, so quote A, so A and a B, let's mm-hmm. go that relatively simply, quote A is, uh, neoliberalism is the, in the modern sense is only a mask that covers the ugly reality of the most rapacious exploitation the destruction of the planet, the destruction of the environment, without the slightest concern about the fate of future generations. That's the first quote. That's quote A. Quote B uh, is, Yet there is an invisible thread joining every one of those forms of exclusion. Can we recognize it? Uh, These are not isolated issues. I wonder whether we can see that these destructive realities are part of the system which has become global. Do we realize that the system has imposed the mentality of profit at any price with no concern for social exclusion or the destruction of nature? Nice. I'm going to let Alex go first. Uh, Also, no Googling for those of you at home. Well, you can, but then you're cheating. Exactly. Okay, so I choose uh, I choose which quote I think is uh, the Pope and which quote I think is Marxist. Yeah. All right. I'm or at least from Marxist.com. I don't need to anger all the Marxists saying maybe this quote isn't Marxist. <laughs> I'm just reading Marxist.com. Uh, okay, I'm going to go with uh, quote A, Marxist, quote B, Pope. All right. Interesting. I'm actually going gonna, gonna to flip it. I okay. think the first one was Pope, second one was Marxist.com. All right. Okay, so everyone else, uh, everyone else out there on the ESVR, you have the next 40-ish minutes to make up your mind without Googling. Uh, and then you guys can break the tie. Which one of these is the Pope and which one is Marxist? Um, and if you're playing at home on the podcast, just pause the program. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, the, um, so, of course, mo- all of this is love to ingest, but uh, what, I, what, I, what I wanted to highlight there is just the level of which the rhetoric has been ramped up mm. on the sort of the way the global system has been actually infringing on, on nature. 
Mm. Uh, you know, and it's and it's it, the fact that you you're getting these incredibly people in incredibly high positions and not positions that are normally you know the Pope has never really been you know has never really been a a big voice for nature for quite some time. Mm. Um, uh, if if ever to the, to the level extent that that this current one is of course, uh, and so I just, that that's that's why I wanted to bring this up. It's a it's a it's a, one of those things where it's like this is the level of which this is the, like you know people always argue about whether or not environmentalism is getting into the mainstream. Mm. I think the Pope's a little mainstream. He's, I, I feel he's, like he's relative relatively. to other popes. He's he's the most mainstream <laughs> in the history of popes. Uh, he, the fact that we can even have a conversation about him being marginally mainstream compared to like regular society that's <laughs> wow yeah. Um, I know. So, uh, so that is, so that's, so that's that story. Uh, but I got another so, one for you. So, uh, do you have another, you have another quote you want to do? No, that's it. We got one. Okay. No. So I had a comment on that. Yeah. So, um, so uh, it, it has to do with discourse and I think this is highly relevant <clears throat> with, uh, our, our, you know, watching the, the just mind bending, uh, would love it if it was a movie, but it's scary cause it's not American election right now. Um, is that, you know, there's this thing where in, historically, and, and, and this carries, you know, for lots of countries and for a lot of political discourse, but just, you know, speaking about the Americans for a second, um, the, the sort of quote unquote right wing was very successful over the last number of years, maybe 30 years, maybe longer, uh, in essentially demonizing certain types of language. And the reason I think this is, uh, successful was for instance, like the word progressive is, uh, even by people that like when you pull them, this has been done numerous times where you'll pull people on positions and then you ask them how they align politically and their answers to the questions about what they think versus the label that they self identify as has no bearing on each other whatsoever. And it's because, you know, certain elements have been able to poison certain words, right? And so, uh, historically in North America, communism has been a dirty word, uh, but into, you know, for the time being, at least, uh, it's an imperfect, uh, line but essentially you know you have communism or communalism i think it might be more accurate um uh, communi- communalism being sort of the ethos and communism being the political structure around that ethos uh, is you know sort of one end of a spectrum and on the other end we could say that we have you know free market economics neoliberalism uh and what i might deem as the idiom of you know what's mine is mine and you know go to hell with <laughs> you can go to hell uh so what happens though is if you poison one of those words where it's always bad what you get is a is a just persistent drift to the other side of it right so when when words like communalism and communism are oh those are dirty words those are bad we don't like those things it doesn't just keep things where they are it actively pushes them because every time that something wants to go in one direction there cannot be an opposition because that opposition is by, wrong by definition uh and that's what we have right so you know saying that you know we want to you know the pope regardless of which ones those quotes are uh, you know the pope is as you're you know pointing out is conf- we're getting able to the fact that we're able to to find it difficult to discern between that and you know marxist.com uh is is not a statement of you know that you know the pope has lost its mind it's that the the current status in which we exist has drifted because of the successful negative ad campaign on certain types of words and certain types of language and certain types of labels uh has allowed it to drift so extremely to one direction um that now i think that it's not that people are changing their minds about communism it's that everyone's going okay okay all right all right you know what there's there's limits like you know we've decided as a society that slavery is a limit well uh every once in a while those limits get updated and i think we're under one of those uh things right now where people are sort of waking up and be like okay you know yeah i don't want to live in you know you know an american might say i don't want to live in china or something like that um even though they're happy to do lots of business with them uh (laughs) 
but you know but there but hey you know we should have there should be some limits to this and well, i think we're just right on the edge of that mm-hmm. right now where, where people are going like okay 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 yeah i didn't want i didn't want to live under you know the ussr rule or whatever you know whatever political stuff the red commie scare and all that either but like hey come on like that's there's got to be a limit here and i think we're we're on that now mm-hmm. uh and i think that both explains the your game or the reason why we could play your game mm-hmm. uh and also is just a trend to keep an eye on and, and actually there's a related story but i'll, I'll uh, that i will tie in but i can tie that in later oh no you tied it now did I? okay so the other one that i had uh that sort of ties directly into that was a fantastic article um which essentially was just somebody who actually had the time to go and do uh the research to find backup for a point that i make regularly just because I, that's what I feel is true. Uh, someone actually went and did the work, so I feel vindicated. Uh, nice. There's a great article. This will be my I really recommend you read it for this week article, mm. uh, which I usually try and pick one that I urge people to actually take a look at themselves. This one's called Overwhelming Evidence That Guaranteed Income Will Work. And uh, what's been done here is a number of studies uh, involving uh, extremely reputable uh, agencies, uh, a number of mainstream media, although I wouldn't always call them reputable, uh, in certain cases. Like fa- it's one of those things where like they have a large incentive to not say yes to this, so so when they even agree, then we're like, okay, it has to be glaringly obvious. Uh, but all sorts of international organizations here. And, and basically, uh, a number of things, including a World Bank analysis of 19 studies, uh, as, uh, as one example, uh, found that simply giving poor people money alleviates uh, poverty. And, and the reason now that's even like, well, why are you even saying that? That sounds silly. But the the large argument against things like a social safety net is that, well, if you just give people welfare, they're just going to go spend, spend it on drugs and alcohol, and they're going to buy booze, and they're going to buy cigarettes. Uh, well, it turns out that that's been extremely heavily studied. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen because you know what? Those people are hungry, and they spend it on food. And then once they have food, they generally spend it to put themselves in, in, a, in a, uh, a at least minimal uh, safe uh, living environment. And then largely what happens is people try and get educated and raise their social structure. The, exactly the same thing that the quote-unquote pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps you know, capitalist dream is supposed to be about is what happens when you meet people's basic needs. Uh, and so I think what's really interesting here, I mean, I uh, we could spend a whole show going through all the data. In fact, I am going to flag this article and we will come back at a future show and uh, when I have a chance to go through my Limits Of series again. Uh, that we will go through a lot the information here in, in quite uh, more detail because I think it's really, really interesting. There's been a number of uh, t- uh, tests and uh, sort of trial runs of various forms of meeting people's basic needs and just seeing what happens. Uh, all of them point all in the same direction, which is that uh, everybody wins. Crime goes down. Uh, ed- general education goes up. People's living conditions go up. With satisfaction with living. Like everybody, not just the people that you funded. Like society as a whole heals when people's basic income uh, and needs are met. Uh, and that is also something that would, you know, five years ago, people would have been pulling their hair out, you know, trying to arrest you. <laughs> Red commie. Um, this is now, I mean, it's certainly not mainstream. This is an alternative news source. But the fact that uh, many serious people are looking into this and going, oh, actually, you know what? It actually does kind of work um, is hopeful. Because yeah. I, I truly believe that this is the this is the path to our salvation, if I can borrow some religious language there for a minute. Uh, we've got three minutes left in this segment, Stephen. Do you got time? Can you squeeze in your last thing? Uh, yeah, well, actually, the one I, the one I wanted to cover, I think I'll, I'll save to the end because it's, it's a two-parter. Okay. Uh, but um, but uh, unless, of course, uh, we'll, we'll come back to the, the protests in Cannonball River at the end of the show. Uh, so, but what I will throw in then, actually, is on the sort of topic of, you know, Slow the slow change of our system, maybe back to something that makes more sense, uh, is that Alberta passed uh, passed a bill banning political donations from corporations and unions. They did. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's 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 widely uh, accused of not being good enough, as 
all bills are. Uh, but at the same time, important to note, it was voted for by members of all parties, yeah. including the PC party. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, so, so there's a, so there's some hope. Um, and it's one of those things where, of course, you know, the, the, the bill itself, uh, you know, there's arguments about it's not going to be do it's not, not going to do enough all those sort of things but anything that's sort of in that direction is so different from the uh, from the from the direction we have been going for so long that it's a generally positive news story I think and the funniest side is that even though that many uh, all the parties voted for it uh, was that the Alberta Rose Party tried to take uh, claim for the policy despite right. the fact that it was in the NDP platform before they existed <laughs> but yeah sure but but I mean, the, what that's interesting is that like that's the thing is that people like politicians know that these types of things are popular uh, but just nobody has the uh, uh, let's say motivation. I was about mm. to say another thing. I mm. can't say on air. Uh, <laughs> somebody has the motivation to do it, and as soon as he does, it's so damn popular that nobody can be seen. Like I guarantee you, a bunch of those uh, conservatives that that voted for it did so sort of under like with their arms behind their back, and it's not because. Uh, you know, somebody was putting pressure on them. It's because they knew, man, this is going to be really popular. And if I vote against this, I am screwed. Well, and also they uh, don't have a they, they have a minority government, so the NDP could pass it no matter what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but like this, so they like they they felt like they had to. But the other thing, like, so you have people now that would know, would have never proposed this, um, mm. and or even if they say they proposed it, you know. Uh, this has not been a real fight about this and somebody comes in and does it and then fall, all, now all of a sudden everybody's falling all over themselves to take credit for it. Um, good on them. You yeah. know, we, 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 we give people a pretty hard time, well, politicians a pretty hard time on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we have to be fair and say credit where credit is due. Yeah, totally. Uh, of course, the, the one thing I will note, along with the concerns about different loopholes that exist, uh, which are, you know, just... One, the thing about loopholes, I think, are, is that they're constantly so boring to actually try to explain that they are always just called loopholes, and that's the enti- and so no one ever actually understands what's actually going on. Um, but what I want to talk about more specifically is that the individual donation limit remains at fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah, that caught my eye too. So it's not like it's not like this is a complete success. Like, to get, like as what like. Most people don't have fifteen thousand dollars to donate, uh, and also like when you look at the the, the concerns you still have of getting money out of politics, a uh, part of it is that the people who actually donate are so commonly people. You even if you donate four hundred dollars, you get three hundred dollars back in a tax receipt or something like that. You get like seventy five percent back of the of the first X amount you donate, um, and. But, but you need that up for money. So there's still like as much as as much as uh, as a lot of these pieces are are, are it's a great like it's a great direction to go. Uh, it, it, there's still definitely a thing where it's like there's still like if I can give you fifteen thousand dollars, I'm not also you know I'm not making thirty. You know I'm not I'm not I'm not I'm not making a I'm not making a like a, a like a lower middle class wage. To and, and then giving you fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah, and so I think that so we'll we'll take our break here. Uh, but I think that the last thing I want to say about that is that here's if you want to go one step farther and and really make this stick, here's what you do. Uh, and I know this might even be controversial even with our audience, mm-hmm. uh, um, but uh, one of the other ways in which people are uh, bought off um, is by you know you don't give them a dime. But you let them know privately or imply it heavily that they're going to get a job when they're done. This is oh, a big yeah. problem with the revolving door between major corporations, oil companies, and I mean, we've we, we, how many t- stories in the last few weeks have we talked about like, uh, about people rotating between boards of you know re- regulatory boards and the companies that they're supposed to be regulating? You mean like Stephen Harper, the, wor- the, the Canada's <laughs> newest uh, <laughs> newest uh, what he, what he, he moved he moved into consulting? I think. Yeah. Well, I'm sure so, that'll be. So here's the thing. Great. Here's the thing, and I and I, I wonder I wonder how my uh, uh, how my idea will. will fair with our audience here, which is that uh, guaranteed minimum income also should apply to all former politicians, and they are now going to be paid by the state a reasonable fair wage 
for the rest of their lives, and uh, they will be put in, maybe they can be hired in other forms of public service. Essentially, they're now in public service. Mm. They cannot be ever hired, contracted, uh, uh, used as some sort of uh, bargaining chip, nothing. They, 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 we have to close the door mm. where they can never be rewarded later for their time, for their decisions while they were in office. And while we're busy pulling uh, uh, everybody up out of uh, poverty and offering them a minimal living income, uh, the politicians should get the same living income, mm. and boy, would that number get real high real fast. <laughs> so why don't we stop it there? Uh, well, I have to preview. I, 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 oh, sorry, one, go ahead. One quick thing, uh, just because I think it's funny. Um, <laughs> but you want to give a people who you want to give former politicians uh, in a, a bunch of money consistently for the rest of their lives for doing very little. I thought we were the Senate for that. Yeah, <laughs> Senate. Well, burn. They, we need to we need to have triple the Senate seats. <laughs> so uh, so what we're going to do after the break? We're going to come back uh, and Emma Ma, uh, one of our uh, very appreciated volunteers who has not been able to make it into the program for a while, uh, did still. Uh, uh, we played an interview that she did down at. Commonbound, which is an interesting conference that was in Buffalo earlier in July. Uh, we have another interview from her on that, so I'll, I'll preview it uh, right before we play it when we come back from break. But we're, we're coming back to a very interesting interview uh, done by MAMA uh, with Denise Fairchild from the Emerald Cities Collaborative from the 2016 Commonbound Conference. Don't go away. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM on one of our very appreciated and wonderful radio syndicate partners, Rabble.ca, and of course the extended podcast version right here at GreenMajority.ca. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. All right. Well, I'm super chilled out. Stefan, how are you feeling? I'm asleep. <laughs> no, it was good. It was very soothing. Yeah. I appreciate that. It also contrasts very well with the uh, dance music I played last week because y'all, <laughs> yeah, I didn't have Alex here. So what am I? What am I to do? Uh, all right. So uh, we're gonna. What we're gonna do now is uh, listen to an interview from. Oh, I should also say, if you're just tuning in. This is the Green Majority. Yes, I'm is. your host, Darren Kaysner. Stefan Hostetter in studio. Alex Ricci in, uh, in the tech room over there. And uh, what we're going to do now is listen to a volunteer who's not here, uh, but greatly missed. And so uh, just because I wanted to hear her voice, I right. missed her so much. Uh, we're going to listen. No, it's a great interview. Uh, we're going to listen to M.A. Ma uh, interview uh, Dr. Denise Fairchild, uh, who's the president and CEO of Emerald Cities Collaborative. This was recorded at the 2016 Common Bound, uh, which is the uh, By the New uh, Economy Coalition. Sorry, Common Bound by the New Economy Coalition Conference, uh, which uh, I think is fairly self-explanatory. We'll talk about it a little bit more uh, when MA gets back as well. But uh, without ado, let's listen to the interview. It's about, uh, well, I'll let them explain it largely, but essentially we're about uh, we're talking about working with corporations, sometimes with a little bit of arm twisting, to get them to rethink their business models in a way that does not destroy the planet and does uh, help uh, some uh, folks that uh, that need it, some, some disadvantaged uh, segments of our economy, uh, and trying to uh, create some equality in the economic system. So uh, we'll leave it there. Let Emmy take it away. My name is Denise Fairchild. <laughs> All right, so let's get started. So I'll just um, I'll, I'll hold this up to me, and then when I ask you questions, then I'll sort of point it at you. Okay. Right. So I'm with Denise Fairchild, who's the executive director of the Emerald City Collaborative. And Denise, I've just been in a session where you've spoken. And I found the work on the Emerald City Collaborative very interesting. So I wonder if you could actually just tell us a little bit about the Emerald City Collaborative, including what the origin of the name is and what it means. Thank you very much. My, uh, my name is Denise Fairchild. As the executive director of Emerald Cities Collaborative, we're a national organization. We are in uh, 10 metropolitan areas in the United States. And we focus on building a sustainable just and inclusive economy and how to actually um, dismantle the extractive economy, uh, the fossil fuel economy, and build uh, a clean, uh, 
um, sustainable economy. And we do this in coalition. So we work with uh, labor, uh, community organizations, grassroots groups, and, and businesses, and government. And in that process, rebuilding both the, uh, the demand and supply side of, of the energy sector to be um, more just, more inclusive, more sustainable. And you had spoken a little bit about our adaptability and culture and the impact of different systems. I wonder if you could comment on that. Great. Well, part of the the big vision of getting to an Emerald City is is to understand um, how to get there. And the process of arriving there really has to do with understanding the culture that has supported the extractive economy and how we need to change our culture to be able to build a different kind of society. Uh, culture, cultural anthropologists say that culture is the most important tool that we have for adaptation. It is what is going to allow us to survive. It's what's going to permit us to be able to um, eat and, and support our family and, and rear our children. And so part of understanding culture is understanding it's about the um, our social relationships and how we work with each other and how we treat each other. It's about our ideologies and, and mode of thought about what's important and what's not important. And so in a Western culture, in a Western value system, you know, money is important and private property is important and materialism and consumerism is, is important and, and the rights of, of communities are disregarded. So that kind of cultural system is what is part of the problem that has gotten us to this existential crisis that, that we're in, where we're facing climate change and, and all of our um, environment is being uh, destroyed. And so part of the change for the future is a re, uh, refocusing our culture because that is how we're going to adapt into this new climate future. And you gave a very nice concrete example around building solutions. And I understand that your work involves some multi-sectoral collaborations. And you've given this example of some work that was being done in Seattle around um, supporting some low-income households uh, to engage in a retrofit program. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, part of the sort of the transition between understanding the cultural underpinnings of our economy and, and what needs to change is understand that we have to also change the institutions that are supporting the sort of the Western value system. And so it's our financial system, it's our educational system, it's our our, our workforce infrastructure, it's our anchor institutions, our health institutions. All of these folks have bought into um, principles and practices of, of, uh, of, of the Western culture. And so what Emerald Cities does is actually bring a lot of these institutions to the table. And we let them know that they are part of the problem. And we let them know that their future is dependent on working together with community groups, grassroots groups, to create something better and different. And allowing them to see their own self-interest in being able to build a sustainable future. So in, in an, an example of that is where we have been working in uh, Seattle through our coalition and have been able to bring the utility sector to the table, uh, as well as the state housing finance agency, 
and be able to create a whole new financing system and a platform, as we call it, to allow low-income communities of color and and nonprofit housing developers to uh, retrofit their buildings, to make them energy efficient, to actually provide for clean energy options for a community that has been left out of the energy revolution. And that's putting new tools to, into the table, which is for uh, municipal utility, they said they're going to provide on-bill financing. So that means that you don't, as a low-income fo- person, need to take money out of your pocket. Um, it also means that uh, for, for large projects, multifamily housing, they're low-interest loans that Housing Finance Agency is providing. And they're doing it in a way that doesn't require security or collateral which is like unheard of. And so to get 2% interest money and it's not you know, secured against your deed of trust and to be able to pay, not have any money come out of your pocket to get the building uh, retrofitted or to get solar uh, and to just pay it back as you know, amortized over your bill, that's huge to the point where prior to putting you know, these institutions to bring them to the table and getting these new tools you know, maybe there would be one house here and one house there. Right now we've got 3,500 units of affordable housing in the pipeline ready to be able to access this new financing and utility program that is a direct result of engaging these institutions to rethink how they're doing business. And that's a great step for inclusion because I think we see many examples where you might hear of these shiny new programs that sound great, but they're really only available or accessible to middle and high income uh, homes. And so the work you're doing is really extending that to people who would not perhaps otherwise have access. One thing you spoke about, too, is really building capacity in a new generation and, and, you know, really working with young change makers. Do you, do you want to share a little bit about that work? Yeah. Uh, so the, the part of sort of reclaiming our community institutions and changing how these institutions are doing business and the values that they hold is also looking at um, our community colleges and the role that they can and should be playing in uh, building a different economy and to training the next generation to understand with the tools to be able to change, uh, to be change agents. And so we have a program, it's it's through the Community Learning Partnership, and they're um, organizing networks in seven cities, from Jackson, Mississippi, to Minneapolis, Minnesota, to uh, Los Angeles and New York and the Bronx, that are actually involving community organizers in establishing community change programs, providing experiential learning opportunities for young and sometimes not so young uh, communities of color about social justice and economic justice and environmental justice and and letting them understand that you know um, that they are important to creating this new sustainable future and giving them the tools and the skills for being able to do this. One of the things that we see right now is community colleges have basically are they are have become tools of industry. You know, they're training our young people for jobs to be able to work for the man, for the system. And, to, and so they're training young people to support the extractive economy. What uh, the pendulum has swung, because that's not what community colleges were historically designed to do. They were historically designed to change, uh, to create uh, 
civic actors, instead of just economic actors, how do you train people to be informed, capable, civic actors? And that's what we're trying to do is move that pendulum back from being just about economic actors to being civic actors. Um, and there's an organization that we partner with, the Democracy Commitment, where 123 community colleges have made a pledge to begin to rebuild their institution to provide um, community change um, opportunities, reinstating liberal arts in, into this uh, educational uh, system that they have. Uh, one of the important things to note is a book is out now called Dark Money, uh, and it really is about the story of the billionaires that have taken over, working to take over uh, the minds of, of young people and, and the economy. And they have established, this is like the Koch brothers, they have established a law and economy course, and they have put them in every Ivy League institution in the United States, the Yales and the Harvards, and they're giving uh, professors money to really train the captains, the future captains of industry around their philosophy about privatization, anti-government, low taxes. And so you're taking these young minds and they're shaping them uh, towards this conservative agenda. We have to be in this battle uh, with comparable tools. And our young people of color are not necessarily in uh, four-year institutions uh, like Ivy League schools, but we're in the community colleges. And those community colleges need to be in service of our ideas of economic, social, and environmental justice. So you're building a counter-movement, which we hope will become the main movement uh, in terms of building this new, these new systems, um, empowering young people, and as you said, not-so-young people, uh, to build this, this new economy, this, this new future. And, you know, what I found really inspiring is that you're tackling this um, on a number of fronts. So you're tackling the systems issues, but you're also bringing a lot of different folks to the table in a constructive process. If you could leave me with one final thought in terms of the importance of sharing your work. You're, you're here with me at Common Bound 2016 here in Buffalo. What do you think is the importance of coming together like this and sharing these kinds of initiatives? Well, th thank you. It's, it's, uh, Common Bound Conference has been a, an important um, venue for cross-fertilization of ideas. The, the issue is that we're all struggling. We're all in the struggle together. Uh, and then we're struggling in our individual cities, whether it's rural communities or major urban areas. We're working in different sectors. Uh, people are working on gentrification issues and people are working on energy issues or people are trying to build co-ops. Uh, and we've got to take this to scale. And if we're going to take this to scale, we've got to share knowledge. We've got to figure out the shortcuts. And if you've been there and if you've done that, then you need to tell me so that I don't have to start from scratch. And so these kinds of uh, places are, are important for uh, to the long struggle ahead and so that we can accelerate the process and take it to the scale that we need to take it. I think it's really interesting that we're also doing it in Buffalo um, as, as an African-American woman and someone who is you know, very steeped in the history of, of, of my people and that of slavery and knowing that Buffalo and, and, and Canada, we're at the place where the abolitionists uh, were, were central to creating 
dismantling the slave economy and building, you know, a, you know, well, or at least dismantling the slave economy. I'm not sure that we built anything better. But uh, the point is, it's the same kind of struggle that we're in right now. You know, that the abolitionist, the emancipation effort was was... Hundred years. It was long term. It took many people from many sectors. It was black and it was white. Uh, we had to change the constitution. We had to change um, the institutions that supported our religious institutions that supported slavery and the slave economy and our uh, legal system and our educational system were all organized around the slave economy. Being in Buffalo uh, makes you very clear that this is the same struggle that we're dealing now to dismantle the fossil fuel economy. It's going to take that same level of multi-sector engagement and, and uh, collaboration. It's national and it's global and it's local and um, it's just a good, great place to be. Thank you so much for speaking to me. This is Denise Fairchild, Executive Director of the Emerald City Collaborative, here with me in Buffalo, and I want to wish you all the best with your inspiring work. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. Great interview. And thank you again for MA for providing us with that. You can learn more about Emerald Cities uh, and uh, and Denise as well. We'll have links up on the website so you can check them out. Um, uh, I, I really I have to. <laughs> that's the second or third time I've heard that interview. I have to say every single time we get to that last part when she's like, oh, you know, we just dismantled the slave economy. And then what? Okay, well, we may not have done anything better, but <laughs> man, brutal. I mean, completely freaking accurate. Yeah, but yeah. it's just like. Yeah, I, I like I like people hearing that because you know one of the things that one of the reasons we why I like doing the show is because like listening to the mainstream media nauseates me so much, uh, and one of it is like the overly sort of you know inoffensive language to the point that like you you muddle something down to that it almost doesn't mean anything anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Once you once you say something in a way that makes everybody happy. Um, that it doesn't mean anything, and I just it just it it fills me with joy, and I can't help but laugh. Not because it's funny, but it, I can't help but laugh with sort of happiness. Like f- yes, when you finally hear somebody sort of speaking truth and not censoring themselves and just saying what they think, it's just so damn refreshing. Mm. Uh, so thank you so much uh, for that as well. So Stefan, uh, we're gonna uh, take a very quick second and final music break. You're gonna come back and uh, t- tell us a little bit more news. We'll uh, we'll find out who won, whether Alex uh, or I, and which of our listeners won uh, your little game there as well with some other news stories coming right back up after this break alex what is our second and final music break all right uh this is a all right thank you alex i love that too that's good great picks love love having you back for many reasons one of them is that your music taste is great <laughs> thanks buddy uh so we're uh, in the final segment here listening to the green majority uh i am your host darren case you're sitting in the studio with Stephen hostetter and of course uh, alex Rishi, who's our uh, tech this week uh and we have a number of uh st- things we want to get through now and we're, we're starting to run tight on time so let's get right to it Stefan. yeah thank you uh this is a quick uh, just a quick update on uh on the ongoing uh pipeline protesters uh in in north dakota of the cannonball river uh, which is 50 miles due south of Bismarck, North Dakota, which is one of those things where it seems like I'm telling you something, but you probably also know where Bismarck is or North Dakota necessarily. So I might, so I might just be saying a bunch of other words that don't necessarily give you any more information. However, uh, the actual, of course, the update, of course, the actual protest continues. It's been going on since April, uh, and it's to block a $3.7 billion Dakota access pipeline. Uh, I know we 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 talked over this in previous shows, but uh, I feel like it's one of those things where it's like it's, uh, as uh, I want to keep reminding people it's happening because I think when these when these encampments so, so it's a it's actually a protest encampment uh, with a, 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 with a shocking ninety different Native American tribes uh, 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 nations nations and tribes have presence there, uh, which is just such a a massive confluence of different 
cultures and people to come together to fight this one thing. And, and, and it seems as if they're coming from – they are actually coming from all across America to support these people in this one land. Um, and, and I feel like it's, it's very easy, uh, I think, for us to forget uh, that these things are ongoing. Uh, you know, these ongoing con- – because when there's no news except that they're still blocking it, it's very easy for us to forget that this is work – they are – this is their lives. There is there is five hundred to a thousand people living semi permanently blocking this pipeline right now. Uh, that's a uh, and these are these are people who who are who you know, let alone they've took out time on their Sunday to go protest to to, to to do a protest march something or something like that. These are people who've taken ye- now months out of their life to go stop to block this, and there are people who out there who have, in other places have done years um, to fight these sort of battles uh, and continually shown just that the amount of which uh, First Nations and Aboriginal peoples are, are consistently on the front lines of the, of these fights. Uh, and I, but the, the quick one I want to the one little tidbit from this article I actually really quite liked uh, was that uh, the people in the encampment speak of these two different prophecies that date back to the 1890s uh, and a leader called Black Elk uh, foretold that in seven generations uh, the Native American nations would unite to save the earth uh, and, and, and then a second legend uh, predicts of, that a Zuzeka snake, a black snake uh, would threaten the world and for many of the protesters the pipeline is that black snake Take that, Nostradamus. Yeah, uh, and they are the seventh generation. Like this is like this is like this is one of those things where it's like, you know, uh, to 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 see this kind of I guess this kind of environmental protection as you're calling to that level to that extent mm-hmm. is what is necessary. I think for us to actually see the shift we need. Uh, and so in, in, in talking, and so I think this uh, it's a it's a run that this is still ongoing, and we will keep covering it as as more as more information uh, con- continues to come out. Uh, of course, a few days earlier, a, f- a few days ago, last week. Uh, on the 24th, a federal judge in Washington delayed the ruling over whether or not they were actually allowed to even be there. Uh, or whether, uh, but of course, that's not the point. Uh, it's one of those things where it's like, yes, that would be sweet uh, if the if the judge got inside, but uh, they're not really, you know, they're not there because the state lets them be there. That's right. Uh, but anyway, so that's nor, nor should they be. Yes, that's the update. So uh, I have six stories, and I'm going to do it in uh, eight minutes. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm, I'm going to go for a record here. All right. Okay, I so I have it. a bunch of stories, and I'm going to string a narrative. This is one of the things I like to do uh, on the show, which is uh, everyone, uh, I assume, who listens to the show is more than likely, uh, I would say, greater than at least 51% uh, are able to read. Hmm. So I'm not going to read the news to you. What I'm going to do is I'm going to create a narrative for you. Uh-huh. I like doing this. So here we go. Six stories in eight minutes. <sighs> So the NEB uh, is postponing Energy East hearings after some uh, apparently violent protests uh, broke out in Montreal. They're being uh, delayed. I don't currently have a date in front of me for when they're going to be reset. But we had about 100 protesters outside, and it resulted in three protesters being arrested, two people facing uh, charges of obstruction and and assault against a police officer. Uh, The point of the story here is, of course, is that the NEB is uh, considered by many to be uh, a completely uh, owned subsidiary of the oil companies uh, and simply doing uh, their bidding on the government's behalf to provide cover. Uh, so this will uh, continue because a lot of people have been paying attention to this. The story has been getting traction and big ups to National Observer for covering it. Moving on. Canadian taxpayers also fork out $3.3 billion every year to support the profitable oil industry. This is a uh, massive number. This is an updated number as well. Uh, despite the fact that Trudeau uh, promised that he would uh, completely phase out all fuel, fossil fuel uh, subsidies over the midterm uh, while making, uh, making it an election promise, uh, we've yet to see any progress on this whatsoever of any meaningful type other than, yeah, we really promise we'll get to that. So what does that mean? Well, also in BC, their climate plan, which we uh, 
tore up a little bit last week as well includes subsidies for subsidy uh, sorry <laughs> fossilies subsidies for fossil fuels as well so what's really interesting here is that uh, 80% of the power produced by the site C dam which is another environmental disaster that was unnecessary uh, as well that was being pushed through 80% of that energy is precisely what these some of these new LNG uh, programs that are trying to be subsidized and pushed forward is through and so I'm going to make the claim that it's at least possible I don't have inside knowledge it is at least possible that the entire idea reason why this horrible horrible premier uh, is pushing through a, a, a energy project called the site C dam for which uh, many folks uh, many experts have said is absolutely unnecessary was simply to provide a quote-unquote renewable resource of power to provide cover for the liquid natural gas projects that she's really in love with and has decided to subsidize in their climate plan story three uh, civil society is not uh, taking this lying down we have a, a new uh, campaign by a wide variety of the large ENGOs in this country uh, who are going to uh, be pushing on Trudeau to commit to ending all fossil fuels in Canada by 2020. You can learn more about that on the website and get involved or sign a copy of the open uh, letter uh, petition. Read it, share it with your friends. Now, why is this important? Because Oil Patch to Solar Field is another story we're covering by D Smog Blog here. And it's talking about how there's so many folks who are oil uh, trained professionals in Alberta looking for retraining in solar industry that there's not enough spots. And there's such a boom of interest in the industry, both from a training and from a, uh, an investment point of view, that uh, there's a lot of concern that Canadians are going to lose out on renewable energy job opportunities because they're not being trained fast enough. And there's so much demand that they're going to be bringing in experts from other countries. So their goal, those good, high-paying Canadian jobs we were supposed to be have uh, in the oil companies. Oh, wait, no, I mean in the solar industry. And so now not only are we going to have solar anyway, but we're going to waste $3.3 billion a year subsidizing companies, which goes right, add that to your price at the pump, folks, that you pay for that. You just pay for it in a different space. It's like the difference between your taxes and paying on the TTC fare. You're still paying for it. It's just a hidden cost because it gets rolled in with your income tax and all sorts of other stuff. So that is still the price of oil, not even covering all the future damage it's going to do. People want these jobs. They're not getting them. Now, why is that important? Well, because we have yet another story of where solar is now surpassing the price of coal to the uh, to the uh, degree that uh, in Chile they are now producing so much uh, solar energy at such an incredibly low cost they're now going to be in completely in uh, not in need of any coal whatsoever and will now begin selling uh, solar power generated energy at a enormous profit to surrounding countries because they're drowning in that liquid liquid gold sunshine. Mm. Wow. There we go. Well, that, you did that in like four. Well, there we go. I was going double fast. So, the, yeah, the overview uh, is that we're essentially looking at uh, the continuance of a, a ton of money for things that we don't need. Uh, the alternatives that are better both for our economy and for our workforce and for the environment are being ignored. And those opportunities are going to go other places. So uh, let's get on Justin Trudeau if he wants to think about his legacy and what does not want to be considered by people more than just me as Harper with shinier uh, smile. He's going to have to get on this, and he has the biggest opportunity to do so in the world because it's actually just completely irresponsible and stupid from every possible point of view, including an economic one, not to. So what more motivation do you need? Mm. There you go. Well done. Uh, I, I, we need. I, I was thinking. The thing is earlier, actually, we uh, a, a small soundboard uh, of, of of a few noises. Like I, I, I'd like to like if I had an applause button right there, I give applause. Um, I was actually thinking about the one from uh, Anchorman where he goes, "That got out of hand really fast. You should probably lay low for a little." While. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we could use that soundbite regularly. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or the or the or the esc- that escalated quickly one. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, well, then uh, I will jump back in uh, and, and, and announce the winner 
uh, of the competition. We have a winner. Yeah, we have a winner. Uh, drum roll, please. Again, drum roll. That would be great. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it is Alex Rigi, everybody. Alex Rigi was correct. I am the loser. Um, That's right. the, uh, so I'm going to, and for all the fun, I'm going to actually, I'm just going to reread the Pope's quote. Uh, just so all of you know, the Pope said this, um, which is, uh, yet there is an invisible thread joining every one of these forms of exclusion. Uh, can we recognize it? Uh, they are not isolated issues. I wonder whether we can see that these destructive realities are part of a system which has become global. Uh, do we realize that the system it has imposed the mentality of profit at any price with no concern for social exclusion or the destruction of nature? Uh, and what I want to highlight here is the Pope is also getting at with something else that we don't talk about too much on the show, uh, in part because it's difficult to, uh, which is the fact that a a sustainable world is like we like it's very easy to talk about things like localism and it's very easy to think talk about things like all of these things that we need right it's very easy to talk about like oh we need to start sharing more things and all this sort of stuff um and this ties into something that i'm actually gonna i want to i want to bring onto the show for during the fall session uh mm-hmm. which is which is the idea i've been teasing for months but i think i'm actually going to sit down and actually write something on, on it this weekend uh which is about this i this idea of the need for environmentalists to plan to win Mm. Emma and I talk about this forever, uh, and so at some point I, I, I'm going to write some about this soon. I, I think Emma and I might sit down and actually really hammer out a larger piece for this. Mm. Um, but the the idea basically being that while it is while we are still pushing the government to get you know you know actually useful carbon prices uh, and all these other sort of things, uh, what we need to start doing as as environmentalists is is to start creating the system that. Creating the, the networks and the systems underneath our current system, so that we can take the burden uh, off uh, off what, what what will inevitably come down. Mm. Uh, and the way what I mean by that is that if you know a strong carbon price, uh, which has been noted all the time, uh, done done you know relatively in almost any way without 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 any without any. Um, any supports for lowering people is a regressive tax, a carbon tax or a present carbon. It, w- it will hurt the, the more disenfranchised more uh, because they don't have the money to, to, to be able to fund it. Um, and, 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 and the idea of consumer goods, uh, as they get more expensive, will disproportionately hurt the people who need this, this, the small amount of consumer goods. Uh, and so part of the environmental plan, I think, has to be creating this network of things like the Toronto Tool Library and a sharing economy. Um, you know, things like uh, local food co-ops that allow you to work uh, and then and, and get and get fresh food that way, uh, and we need we need to start finding and creating these systems uh, that in place that can actually uh, allow us to be more local than we are now. Like right now, it's almost impossible to buy thing be, to be totally local. It's almost impossible. Um, and and as much as as much as I think there's a there's still this idea that you know we it's funny because environmentalists are so commonly both simultaneously globalists and that we are one world, uh, but localists and saying but you pro- should probably eat the the, the the thing right behind you rather than the thing from Panama. Mm. Um, and, I, and we have to hold these two tensions in our in our, in our hands at the same time. Uh, and and I think so. That's what is interesting with the Pope's here message here is that is that really that what we see when you when you export uh, when you're importing so many stuff is you is you miss all the impacts of of where it's actually being created. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a central problem that also exists uh, within cities. Uh, 
is that when cities say that they're going to go carbon-free or anything like that, uh, they are talking about scope three emissions, uh, which is emissions that are basically directly happen inside the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, and of course, the problem with that is you could be a completely 100% renewable energy or renew, renewable city in scope three emissions. You could have only solar panels inside your city. You could do all this sort of stuff. But if you're still importing all of the stuff you consume, all you're doing is exporting the emissions somewhere else. Including the solar panels and the food and the exactly even exactly even exactly even the re- even the renewable energy itself we're exporting the emissions to cr- build those to build these renewable technologies um, and so I think what we need to start having is convers- a larger conversation about uh, is how we can get down to the hard part of actually building a sustainable society uh, outside of the constraints we see so consistently within uh, with the, within the globalized system that that is so consistently proven to be to have these difficulties. Yeah, and the, the, I mean, the other thing, too, there was something um, very uh, interesting which actually stuck with me that was said. Uh, so I was uh, doing a local event. Actually, I think I was, I was speaking at uh, some local event. And uh, a local activist, part of the uh, uh, No Line 9 uh, folks here in Toronto, uh, who I bumped into a number of times, uh, sent me uh, – we chatted with him, and he ended up sending me an email. And uh, the beginning of the email, it was uh, you know, a whole bunch of ideas about certain you – know, different ways to organize society. But it was, it was the way that he opened the email, actually, that, that uh, I remember more vividly than the than the actual content because I mean, it was a bunch of interesting ideas, but there's lots of, you know, lots of ideas. But the thing was the ideas that uh, was outlining, I believe it was a quote by somebody, probably a Marxist, frankly, uh, <laughs> or the Pope or the Pope uh, saying something about, you know, when, when society fails um, it, you know, it grasps it, when an idea that runs a society fails or something like that, uh, it will grasp for the nearest one at hand to replace it. Hmm. And that that is why it's important, you know, and ex- I, even my brother, I'm going to pick on him because I don't think he's listening uh, <laughs> has, you know, sometimes been like, Oh, well that, you know, that pie in the sky, you know, futurism, you know, everybody's technology, blah, blah, blah. That's a waste of time. That's because that, that's not going to happen in my immediate future. And so it's, it's useless. And, and he actually finds it kind of annoying to talk about this stuff. Fair enough. That's his point of view. <laughs> uh, but this is why it's important thing is that, yeah, we have to talk about the world we want and how that would work. And I think it is important to have these discussions. And even if there's no clear path to how we'll get to that right away to just to have these discussions, because maybe it will happen over time. Uh, but also B is to make the case uh, about how the systems we have now are are it, it's they're not under threat from annoying activists uh, because if that's the only threat that people see is that well you're going to get complained if you do this uh, the attitude is well yeah but you'll never give up that stuff right so it's it's people doubt people's sincerity and how far they're willing to go for these fight these things and so I think what we really need to do while we do keep up pressure and you know and, and you know uh, big up to all the the activists who are or, uh, First Nations and, and Indigenous folks who are collecting in, in North Dakota uh, but it's also to talk about how the system endangers itself and how we're just pointing out that it's a bad system that's going to devour itself and collapse anyway and we're simply asking for a plan to replace it when it does but it's not like capitalism that in its current form is not going to collapse because of a bunch of angry uh, activists is going to collapse because it, it's eating itself and we're simply trying to warn the alarm bell and saying hey maybe we should pull a shoot before we hit the ground i just looked up it's 11:59, Stefan. thank you so much for joining me this week nice to see you as well alex thank you so much for seeing us we're gonna be back with the bonus show if you're listening to the podcast other than that thank you for enjoying this week's edition of the green and majority radio program see you all next week take care Thanks for listening to The Green Majority. We're now going to get into the bonus show where we talk about the Zika virus and basically how people are bad at threat assessment triage. Uh, We hope you enjoy the program. If you do, one way you can help support us, of course, is to share the program. You can also go to the website and get notes. But a great way to support us is also to become a member. You can do that at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Green Majority or check out the show at greenmajority.ca. Enjoy the bonus show.
We are good. So we're on the bonus show. This is the Green Majority Bonus Show. Bonus show uh, brought to you by Stefan Hostetter because he hasn't been here in a while. That's true. Uh, so we're going to talk about something really quickly, which is that we actually haven't, and I'd like to come back to it, uh, but we've uh, mostly just because it keeps feeling slightly less important than other stuff. But you know what? Mm. That's not true. It is. And we really do need to come back to the Zika story. Oh, yeah. uh, the uh, birth defects. Uh, I've been reading the news. We just haven't talked about on the show. We've had a uh, uh, first known case in the U.S. And then there was the first time ever there was a CDC quarantine or travel advisory within the U.S. due to Zika in Cuba. Uh, not Cuba, uh, in Florida. Uh, we also had uh, now the first, uh, then uh, about a week after that, we saw a headline saying the first known sexually transmitted uh, version of a Zika. Uh, it was confirmed that it was related to all these birth defects. And then recently we've had the first sexually transmitted without the carrier being infected. So an, uh, someone who didn't know they were infected where it's not displaying symptoms successfully passed the disease to somebody else. Mm. Uh, so this, uh, I mean, I, I don't think I'm going overboard here and saying this has the potential to, uh, along the lines of as far as how much damage it could do, be essentially the new AIDS as far as like, you know, what happened in the 80s. And I mean, obviously medically we're speaking differently, but as far as like a new catastrophically damaging lots of people are going to be impacted in lots of horrible ways very very difficult to control uh highly virulent disease with nasty nasty side effects um i'm terrified Mm. Uh, but so what we have though is in a now even though the u.s government has been uh, very slow to approve new funds uh, obama was uh giving uh i forget if it is the house of the senate but giving somebody uh crap for wait no it's a bonus show i can say shit Yeah, yeah uh giving somebody shit for um not uh, getting out the funds because they were niggling over uh, like little details. There was some argument back and forth about the little details that were on it. So funding hasn't come through. Yeah, Republican uh, Congress, I think he's blocking. Yeah, it was Congress. And then so anyway, so that's going. And meanwhile, meanwhile, uh, they decided to uh, airbomb poison to get rid of the Zika mosquitoes and wiped out millions of honeybees because they weren't already in trouble. <laughs> so that's where we are now. Uh, I'll, I'll get a couple more details on that. Uh, but Stefan, I, I wanted to know what you uh, thought. I, I mean, A, on the story, but also B, I'm, I'm wondering, like, you know, what level of health crisis? I guess the question is, what level of health crisis does it become a legitimate strategy and not just a idiotic shoot first, ask questions later strategy to do something like drop clouds of poison from the sky that kills everything? So, yeah, so there's so I, said, I promise I'd tease something on you that second because the, the this is a. This is a this is a, like, I feel like Zika virus is a, is a fascinating case because of the fact that it is not not really that dangerous for anyone who's alive. You know, it's not people aren't people aren't dying from Zika virus. The problem is that people is that is, is the health is yet the, to be alive. Well, yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. Yeah, uh, it's it's the health effect on on on, on people's on, on people's children, uh, and so it kind of strikes me as a. Do you ever play that? This is this is going to seem this is going to seem like I'm being flippant, but I this is a I promise there's a point. Uh, do you remember that online game uh, where you were trying to create a disease that would slow that wipe out humanity? Oh yeah, I love that game. Uh, and like in the in the and it was like basically it's called Pandemic or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, we we actually talked about that on the show because I was I was on a on a bent about talking about how video games can be useful for education, uh, and and I learned a whole lot about disease vectors uh, right. from that game. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the way you win that game is that you get a virus that people aren't that scared about, give it to everybody, and then ramp it up. That's how you win that game. Yeah. Uh, usually Madagascar still lives because fuck Madagascar. Um, but that's the, in in the game, in the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm totally, I have no real issue with Madagascar. Uh, not only in real life, but also in other games, uh, in risk, Madagascar is great. 
Yeah. I love Madagascar and risk. Um, but uh, but the what is interesting about it, I feel like the Zika virus has a, a similar type of of impact uh, as something like honestly like something like climate change, which is that it's it's slow, it's hurting mostly poor people in the South, um, and it's and it's and it's relatively it seems not scary uh, it, until you fully understand the full impacts that it could have. Now. I think it's uh, it's still it's still a long way from being a true epidemic, and I think in part you know uh, the the like it could the way it's it, the, the new ways it's spreading. I think is 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 the serious concern. I think to some extent, uh, and, but but I think it also uh, we should point out that the reason why there are more the reason why mosquitoes are fully slowly moving north is because everything is getting warmer. For reasons that we don't know why, and mosquitoes why are things make incredibly good disease vectors for all types. So even yeah. if we wiped out, uh, you know, this virus and that virus, exactly. or whatever, mosquitoes are simply and we, and even if we wiped out mosquitoes, it yeah. wouldn't make any difference. They're just a vector, but they are an extremely dangerous vector because of their the fact that they you know do their business based on blood transfers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're uh, and so and so we should be relatively concerned. Um, the but to get to, to your point, and that one thing I was gonna I was gonna I was gonna I was gonna tease is that. I read that story and I had this reaction, which was uh, on Wednesday, a couple days ago, uh, I performed at the Bad Dog Theater uh, at this uh, sci-fi uh, storytelling event, uh, sci-fi fantasy and horror. It's called the it's called um, uh, Tales from the Black, uh, and it's a cool idea. The show is basically as if the, the way they pitch it is that it's like if the person who main character from Aliens uh, l- f- finished the movie and then went to a storytelling event and told the story of aliens uh, that's the that's what the show is so like they're like 10 minute first person narratives uh as if they're true stories but they're obviously you know not uh and in that story uh i i i'm basically i i'm basically play the the worst version of what my my life could be like in 30 years uh where i'm still on the radio getting kicked off the radio <laughs> uh because for whatever for whatever reason uh and but the but the thing about it is that there's this piece of it when i hear, when, when, when i read that that there's a point where you're just like we knew what was going to happen you know like the number of times like if we if, if all the bees go away no one is going to be able to say that no that we didn't know it won't be one of those things where everyone is it's, that, that, this one's not sneaking up on us this is like every every couple weeks we're like oh yeah we just we just pesticide some more bees uh we don't know why all of them are dying but we keep spraying things on them and then they die i don't know what's going on it's like we're smarter than that like humans can figure out what are we doing? Maybe we shouldn't kill 2.5 million bees from bee farms. We literally sprayed over bee farms. Like this is ludicrous. It's like it's incompetence to an it's incompetence, and I guess it's also it's it's a I guess this is the most human part about it is that it's refusal to understand the actual importance of nature. Right? It's this idea that like oh yeah we can make a mistake and kill 2.5 million bees. And, 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 and there's not enough checks and balances. Like, f- heaven forbid you try to get one 110-milliliter thing of toothpaste on a plane. Uh, that we are on point, and you will not do that. But kill 2.5 million bees by, by dropping pesticides on them? Meh. It's like we just don't understand how these things are working. Anyways. Alex? This is my rant. Any, th- any thoughts on that? That was a good rant. I don't know how to follow it up. But um, <laughs> I, uh, I was wondering about... Um, whether the Zika virus would would be uh, such a prominent issue if not for the Olympics, drawing attention to it, uh, because so many people from outside of South America were were all of a sudden uh, 
going to Brazil and and possibly being exposed to this virus. So we might be we might have a jump on the virus compared to uh, your average epidemic springing up in the third world just because of this uh, this huge uh, event that was happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, the 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 government there was um, was accused of all types of negligence. So I'm I'm somewhat skeptical that they took any precautions on that, considering you know. Uh, let's point out the the the, the, the like we we had a bit of a show about like everyone should just read what's happening about what's going on in Brazil right now. That should just be a thing. Uh, you know, as far as one of the one of the one of the like you know they were they were part of the BRIC nations, uh, the Brazil, Russia, India, and what's the C in BRIC? China. Um, nations that are, that are doing this, uh, you know, the four big up and coming power, you know, the up and coming, but like the four like slightly larger powers, um, and and then and then and then just what what is going on with their democracy, quote unquote democracy right now, uh, is is shocking and depressing, and everyone should read at least one strong Glenn Greenwald article on it, because uh, as far as English writers who are covering it, he's one of the better ones. One is one of the things that I find so sort of amazing was that, you know we're not the only people to do this but it doesn't certainly doesn't happen very often where it's you know people you know it might be this or that or it could be you know whatever shooting here or ISIS there or blah 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 there's all these risks right that we get told about on a regular basis um, but it's I mean it takes like less than ten minutes to look up uh, information to find out about relative risks I mean it's 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 known in in medicine as triage which is you you always have Generally speaking, you always have more problems you want to deal with than you have the ability to deal with problems. That's just that's just that's how life works. <laughs> uh, we don't live in a utopia, utopia, and until we do, that will be true. So, what you have to do—the idea of triage—is that you assemble your your risks, or or in the in a medical sense, the people most likely to you know have fatal uh, die if they don't get treatment. And you prioritize that, right? So, you treat a gunshot wound to the head before you treat a stabbing wound to the arm. Uh, but we don't do that when it comes to public policy, right? Like more people, what was it? Uh, I'm sure I could just make something up and it would probably be right. Uh, it was like, was it sharks or bears or I don't know, something like that. You know, more people from that than, you know, die in the U.S. from terrorist attacks. Or, it's, or, I think it's sure. Uh, you know, like it's just, it's as far as the, the point is that on our list of, on your list of threats, there are thousands of things before we get to the ones that we actually end up talking about that would have so much more of an impact and cost so less, much less to deal with. Uh, and to a big degree... I feel like the public isn't even that ignorant about it. I just I don't understand why. Yeah, I mean that, that's what tipped me off when you were saying the yeah. thing about the thing on the toothpaste on the on the plane. <laughs> be like, yeah, we should do that. Um, but if there's like if that taking enough resource to prevent that, that we can't you know uh, not have arsenic in our drinking water everywhere across the country, then I'm going to say between those two things, let them take the toothpaste on. Like if it's <laughs> one or the other. It, as scary and terrifying and as, as an incendiary as it sounds to say, I'm willing to take an increased bomb risk mm-hmm. versus the, like, the, the thing is people just turn their ears off after that first part. Right. Like, no, no, we have limited resources. Here's a list of problems. Which of these five do you want to deal with? And people will, without having them ranked for them, pick almost exclusively the least five, the, 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 the least impactful five problems to well, deal with. And just because they, they sound, right? We got all worked up about them. They sound the scariest. Um, and it's not, you know, sexy to talk about bear attacks or whatever. But, and, and those are, are It is are definitely problems. sexy to talk about bear attacks. I'm just saying. <laughs> okay, fine. Uh, but, you know, like, it's just, I just, and I don't know what the answer is, but I just, I don't understand why people are so thick about it. Well, it's, it's, like, are you actually concerned? Like, I, I wonder if part of it is just, you know, it's a cloak for racism. And I'm sure that's some of the time is the case. Well, just, I just don't like those brown people anyway. Right. 
Uh, but I, that can't be all of it, and that can't explain everybody. I think it's it's a it's a it, it, I think in part it's a there's two things. One, it's a complete lack of ability to it's a it's a disinterest in solving systematic problems. Uh, you know, for example, like there's lead in a lot of drinking water in the United States. <laughs> there's just and it keeps happening. I think I think there's recently a whole bunch of tests going on in St. Louis in schools about whether or not there's lead in their drinking water. And it's like, you know what would be better than sending than than you know than your seventeenth F thirty five. Not having lead in your drinking water, that would probably be better. Uh, especially like, 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 or, or you know, and then you, but then you get to things like, you know, like there's this comedy bit, uh, which, which is, which is partially also just lie about statistics. Uh, so don't just take this a grain of thought, but but has a but has a, a relatively useful point here, uh, which is that um, when you compare the number of people uh, who die from drinking, just drinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, which you know, liver damage, all that sort of stuff. It's a very, very high number. When you understand the people who die from driving, uh, it is, it is, it is, it is, it is an incredibly high number. Driving is one of the most dangerous things you can do. Uh, drinking and driving has a relatively smaller, de- a smaller subset of people who die every year. Uh, so to be safe, you should probably just drink and drive rather than driving or drinking. You know, if you're, you're going to do either one of those things, do it at the same time because that's how you survive. But like, obviously, that's ludicrous and that's lying about statistics. Um, but the point is this: like, but like, it's these. No one is no one is out to solve driving. No one is like, and then you hear that you like. You, the, the most ludicrous things, right? It's like people obviously just don't actually care so much about a human life in a way that that that, that they really claim to. Because if we would, I don't know if either of you remember the entirely long fight that occurred after uh, some after. The the Toronto uh, like director of health or something some some health uh, professional in Toronto uh, said that we should lower their speed limit in Toronto to thirty kilometers an hour because it like the difference between thirty and forty kilometers an hour thirty and fifty kilometers an hour of of driving getting hit by a car as a pedestrian is like a twenty percent chance of survival to an eighty percent chance of survival and everybody flipped out it was like asking people to drive ten kilometers slower was like the most unreasonable burden to probably save. 15 to 20 lives a year and yet the same thing is yet when you actually look at the numbers what really are we doing with the toothpaste how many lives each year are we saving with toothpaste compared to the number of lives and and yet and yet so we've accepted that waiting in lines for security is a delay we will accept for the privilege of flying and yet the delay of driving slightly slower on our roads is something we will not accept for the privilege of not killing the next person you run into Mm. and it's, it's just like this We've got we. It's it has to do, I think, with how you understand this the thing, right? You can't control whether or not someone attacks you, and you think you can control how good of a driver you are, uh, and so they're like, "No, it'll be fine." Well, we'll I, get bigger. I want to disagree with you, but to back up your point, which right. is that I do think people are trying to solve the problem of drivers on the roads. That's what automated cars are, <laughs> uh, but people will resist that. Right, like a lot of like a lot of people are resisting the idea of self-driving cars because they're like for them like no I drive like there's that connection between people and vehicles and like the car culture. Be like, this is better for everyone. It's safer. It's going to be cheaper. Like everything about this is better. Be like, no, I want my car. <laughs> uh, but by the way, make sure that nobody has toothpaste. Like, I hate to come back. Like just people are just really idiotic, and I think it, it comes down to like self-interest and what people are willing to give up. And you and if you offer them security in the form of spending money to do things that may or may not actually increase security but perceived to increase security like i bet if you had two proposals to increase road safety and one of them was to have like 
you know, a cop every 40 feet with a shotgun and the other one was to have self-driving cars, I bet people would go with the shotgun because they're like, I'm still in charge, but there's an enforcer there because they think of it as in, I'm obviously going to be the person in the right and it's the other drivers are going to be people in the wrong. So when those cops on the side of the road, they're going to be there to back me up and keep me safe. Therefore, I go for that. But if you want me to get in a self-driving car, you're taking away my agency. Now it's not sort of an extension of my body and it's not my manliness is now being questioned. And like, it's, it's pure emotion. It's pure emotion, for a, and for a bunch of people that largely where these arguments come from, you know, who are very, very concerned with being seen as you know, tough and, and in charge, they're pretty cowardly a lot of the time. Pretty, pretty pathetic and cowardly. Alex? Well, as somebody who drives a lot, I can't wait to have a self-driving car because I didn't, I didn't I'm just going to be sleeping the whole time. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. And, uh, and honestly, like, I'm, I'm terrified of hitting pedestrians, whether it's my fault or their fault in toronto every single time i drive in the city imagine one day you get a ticket for not being asleep at the wheel (laughs) (laughs) i like it so i think i think we've gone uh, on on front of that we'll just take a look take a little bit lower we went on to almost 30 minutes last week oh wow we're gonna give people a break (laughs) cut a a little bit short this week i just wanted to say that uh i I like your game stevan yeah Let's do that again, and maybe next week we can play uh, Hitler or Trump. <laughs> that's. I feel like I've, I. I think that's harder. I think that's actually harder. Mm. And and to be fair, as I was saying to you, uh, it's a lot easier to probably find quotes that are so similar enough. The hardest thing, just for all of you know, just so I can so because we, because our goal is obviously to insult as many people as possible, or to anger as many people as possible, not insult. Well, at least some. Remember yeah, least what some. I said earlier: is if you're not offending anyone, you're not doing anything. Right. Yeah. So we just have to make sure that at least somewhere between ten and fifteen percent of people are offended at all right. times, and we're probably doing our job. Okay. Great. Uh, so this one is just for the fact that. Uh, I had such a hard time finding a good quote from from the Marxists because of how much jargon exists within Marxism. Mm-hmm. Like the chance that like I literally spent I, I just found it in time for the show. I just found it like seconds before it went on. I found a quote that didn't include the word bourgeoisie, um, and like I'm sure I could fi- like I could you know I'm sure someone's written like a normal English for communism thing. Uh, and Marxist in Marxist.com is just not the right source for that. Uh, but yeah, I was going to become a Marxist, but I didn't have a monocle. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All right. I think we've offended enough people now. Or at least tease them friendly. Yes, there you go. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. I uh, hope you enjoyed the show. We did. And we'll talk to you real soon. Take care. Later.